Would you open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 1? We will be reading verses 1 through 3. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning and we rejoice in who you are and what you have done. You are a great and glorious God. You are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And we see it in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the promised one, has come. And we rejoice in him. He has come as the the bridegroom who rejoices over his bride. He comes as the great warrior who binds the strong man. He comes as God himself. He comes as a gentle and lowly shepherd who binds up and heals broken people. He has come as the blessed servant of Isaiah 53 and he has given his life as a ransom for many. And we rejoice in your Son. And Father, we give thanks for the Spirit which you have given to us. And we pray this morning as we draw near to your word and as we hear it sound forth, oh, we ask for your blessed Spirit to be at work within us and among us, that, you, that we would have ears to hear and that we would have eyes to see, and that we would have hearts to treasure. Father, we need your Spirit. We are just a dry desert, a wilderness without your Spirit. And so send refreshing rain upon our souls this morning, we pray. May your words sound forth and give us life. Father, meet us now in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the new year, and as we begin a new year, we get to begin a new book. And so we're going to begin our first expository sermon series together. I'm very excited about this, and the the hope going forward is to work through the Gospel of Mark in its entirety, uh, bit by bit, verse by verse. And so the plan for this morning in particular is not to look at a specific text out of the Gospel of Mark, but to orient our minds, to get our minds ready for Mark and its message. Before one works out, they usually warm up their body. Before you go on a jog or a bike ride or whatever you may be doing, you, 
you limber up your body so that your body is ready to move and so that you don't injure yourself. What we want to do this morning is warm up our hearts and our minds and our affections as we get ready to enter in and work out through the Gospel of Mark. And so the aim for this morning is twofold. First, we want to begin to get a taste of the Gospel of Mark, why he's writing this book, where he's going to take us through its pages, how he's going to bring us to see Jesus and his kingdom and what that might mean initially. And second, we want to anticipate what Mark and his story about Jesus and his kingdom might have for us as the people of God. Where is Mark going to take us with this story about Jesus? And how might the story about Jesus and his great kingdom even change us? And so this morning, let's look at this first aim. Let's get acquainted with the gospel of Mark. And so there is a common cry that permeates the pages of the Old Testament, a deeply troubling cry, and it reaches down into the depths of the soul. Psalm 10 cries out, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And Psalm 13 picks up this very same theme. The psalmist cries out, How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And this cry extends outside the Psalms to the book of Lamentations. And we hear the same cry at the end of the book. The author says, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And so we hear these, these deeply troubling cries from the pages of the Old Testament. How long, O Lord? Why do you forget us? Why are you so far away from us? We have to ask, what has the Lord done with these cries? We have to ask, has the Lord heard these cries? Has he given an answer? Has he come to the aid of his people? And these cries, they they come noticeably from the pages of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament and the very fact that we call it the Old Testament reveals that we understand it, that by itself, it is an incomplete book. It cannot stand by itself. And these questions are raised through its pages. But we find no definitive answer in its pages. We find not the fullness of what the psalmist and the writer of Book of Lamentation looks for. And when we leave its content, we are left asking, where has the God of Israel gone? What has become of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? The Old Testament is not just full of these heart-searching, heart-wrenching questions. 
but it's also a book of anticipation. It's a book of looking forward, looking to someone, something. It's a story full of promises and statements and covenants made by a good and gracious God. In the pages of the Old Testament, we come to meet Israel's God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord. And we find out that He is a promise-making God. He drew near to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And He graciously promised to be their God and that they would be His people. And that He would be their shield and their very great reward. That He would bless them and make them multiply. And that they would be a blessing to the nations. Even more as we continue to read in the pages of the Old Testament, when we come to the time of the the prophets, the writing prophets, Yahweh draws near and he, He promises to forgive them of their sins, all of them. And He even promises to send His gracious Spirit among them to make them walk obediently to all of His laws and statutes. And these promises, they pepper the narrative of the Old Testament And as you begin reading the Old Testament, which you might be doing because the new year started, the Old Testament is structured around these promises, promise after promise after promise. And they shine as bright stars against the black backdrop of Israel's sin and rebellion. The pages of the Old Testament also tell a story that is located east of Eden. And the people of this story that we find in the pages of the Old Testament are just like the first man who lived in Eden and had to leave Eden for his disobedience. A people who reject the good word of God for the lie of the serpents. And when we proceed in the story of the Old Testament as far as we can, when we read every last page, we are left with this tension. On the one side, on the one hand, We know of Israel's sinfulness, their disobedience, their disregard for God and His words. But on the other hand, we have come to know Yahweh, this gracious, promise-making, promise-keeping God. He He is good. And so with this tension on the left hand and on the right hand, it only heightens and intensifies the cries that we we heard in Psalm 10 and Psalm 13 and in the book of Lamentations. How long, O Lord? How is this tension going to be solved? And so this morning, as we begin to think about the Gospel of Mark and how we are to read and understand this Gospel, we have to recognize and wrestle with this tension we see in the pages of the Old Testament. God's people were wondering and waiting and looking. And it's helpful for us this morning to put ourselves in the shoes of a first century Israelite just before the coming of Jesus. What would they have been thinking as they read the Scriptures? What would they have been hoping for? How would this tension be working in their hearts? And specifically, we can ask, what would the pious and hopeful Israelite have been thinking when they read the book of Isaiah, particularly chapters 40 through 55? So let's put ourselves in the shoe of an Israelite just before Jesus is coming, after reading Isaiah. Where is God? Our foes are rejoicing over us. We stand oppressed on every side. Where is the God who has promised to come as our warrior, to fight for us, to fend off our enemies? Where is the God of whom Isaiah speaks? 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Where is our king and our true protector? We just have false kings, pretender kings ruling over us. Where is the sovereign God of whom Isaiah speaks? I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. What has become of that jealous God who yearns for his people and desires his people? Doesn't Isaiah say of Yahweh, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. When will we experience the blessed spirit of the Lord? We are dry. It's like we're in a wilderness. We have not tasted water. When will the Lord send refreshing showers upon our souls and make us live When will the wilderness sprout up into Eden? Didn't Yahweh promise us? I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. And where is the great shepherd of Israel? We are like lost sheep straying here and there. There is no one who is here that can lead us and lead us well. There is no one to care for our souls. Where is this God of whom Isaiah speaks? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Where is the shepherd? And what has become of the bridegroom? Has he found another lover? Has he become lost or distracted? Did he forget his pledge of marriage? Did he forsake his vows? What has become of the great marriage day? Where is this God that Isaiah speaks so cheerfully of? As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And where is the God who is going to go to the nations and make a way and bring true knowledge and true worship to the very corners of the earth? Where is the God who is going to bring the Gentiles like streams to Jerusalem, to Zion, to worship? What has become of the God who says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. We look out and the nations are full of idolatry. What of our sins? They've pushed us far away from God. They've stained all of our clothing. They've defiled us. They stink. And they follow us around day and night. Where is the God who has promised to blot out our sins? Where is the God who is going to turn the crimson into white like snow? Where is this God? As we think about what the first century Israelite would have been wondering and hoping for, it doesn't take much work to see the relevancy of these own questions for our own souls 2,000 years later. These questions point us towards this tension. On the one hand, we've heard of the sinfulness of Israel and we know our own sinfulness. And on the other hand, we've heard of Yahweh and his good purposes, his promises, his love, his mercy, and his grace. And what is going to become of this question? How long, O Lord? And here we can come to the the Gospel of Mark. And Mark doesn't sit politely on the edge of this discussion, but he enters into the fray. 
Mark does not avoid the long-held tension of how long, O Lord, and all of its implications. But he comes and he picks them up and he wrestles with them. And Mark comes to us and he urgently grabs us by the shirt sleeves. He rushes us to see the answer to these questions. And Mark's story of Jesus is different than all the other gospel stories we have in our Bibles. Mark does not offer us a birth story like Matthew and Luke do. We do not hear of Joseph and Mary, the pregnancy story. We do not hear about angels and mangers. Mark's gospel is different than John's gospel. John has this weighty theological prologue and he brings us into the depths of eternity. But Mark doesn't do that. And Mark takes a distinctively different route than the other gospels. Jesus suddenly appears. And through this suddenness and urgency, Mark begins to answer our many questions. And he presses upon our souls the answer to all these questions in the very first sentence of the gospel. He declares, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark's urgency does not stop, but he moves us through the story of Jesus at a breathtaking pace. He moves us from place to place, from healing stories to conflict stories with the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. He moves us from hearing the teaching on parables to the forgiveness of sins. He moves us from boat rides to the top of mountains, from quiet suppers to riots, even to a bloody Roman cross. And Mark deliberately and urgently through the story brings us to see the climax of Israel's history. And he reveals before our eyes God's definitive answers. He tells us, he preaches to us throughout his gospel. The time of crying out, how long, O Lord, has come to an end. The very first words that come out of our Lord's mouth in the gospel of Mark answer this question and deal with it. Jesus preaches. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Mark, as a good writer, scene by scene, story by story, teaching after teaching, reveals to us that Jesus fulfills all of the hopes of Israel. Within Mark's gospel, there is not a, a throwaway word or an idle scene, but every word Every action, every detail of Jesus and about Jesus reveals the blessed gospel hope in the pages of Mark. And Mark tells us, the time of waiting, the time of looking is over. Jesus has come and he is bearing God's kingdom on this world. Jesus is the embodied presence of Yahweh. He is the great warrior and deliverer and he is going to go to battle with that strong man. And he is going to wrestle him. He is the gentle shepherd of the sheep and he's going to gather in the outcasts. He is the bearer of the Spirit of God and he is going to send refreshing rains upon the people of God. He is the great king of Israel and he is going to reign over the entire world. He is the faithful bridegroom who has not forget, forgotten his pledges to his wife. and He is going to come and he is going to rejoice over his people with gladness. And he is the very servant who will give his life as a ransom for many. 
with such longings and unmet expectations woven into the very fabric of Israel's life and thinking, their very story. One would think that when Jesus showed up and he started preaching this message, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, that he would have been welcomed, that he would have been greeted with open arms. This is what they have been looking for and longing for, God returning. And this is what Jesus declares to them. Maybe Israel would throw a a welcome prayed to him. However, Jesus' arrival only brings great confusion to Israel. And we see this confusion revealed in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' own family misunderstands him and believes that he's out of his mind. Jesus' neighbors, the people that he grew up with, the people that watched him and knew his family, took offense at him and would not give allegiance to his powerful and authoritative words. Jesus' own pastors and teachers rejected him. Pharisees and scribes come down from Jerusalem and assess what he is doing in Galilee, and they conclude, this is not the bearer of the kingdom of God. This man is an agent of the devil. While Israel is crying out, how long, O Lord, the Son of God stands before them, but he is completely unrecognizable to them. Mark tells us that Jesus is the new patch that doesn't fit on the old garment that he is the new wine that doesn't go into old wineskins. And Jesus' words, instead of bringing light and understanding and healing to the people of Israel, only harden and make their hearts further and more dull. Israel, as we see in the Gospel of Mark, is just like Adam in the garden, just like the wilderness generation who murmured and took after golden calves and worshipped them. They will not submit to the words and the ways of their God, Yahweh. But the Lord does not give up on his purposes. And when you read the Old Testament, we see that Yahweh is a faithful God. In the pages of the Old Testament, Yahweh sends prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger, and the prophets come to to work amongst the people with this aim to draw the people back to God. So Yahweh sends prophet after prophet, but Israel refuses to repent. And in the Gospel of Mark, we see the climax of Yahweh's faithfulness. He does not give up on his people. And he reasons in the Gospel of Mark and says, They will respect my son. But Israel's hearts are hard and they're resistant to Jesus. He is an offense to them. Even more, he is a threat to the way of life, their power structures, their worship, the way they have ordered things. So the religious leaders, the crowds, and even one of Jesus' disciples join together and they conspire saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they do not only plot against Jesus the Son, but they execute Jesus the Son. And they took him and killed him, Mark says, and threw him out of the vineyard. Mark is dealing with tension, and he brings us to see a conundrum. Mark's story presses upon us the conundrum of the cross. 
And the cross, as we see it in the Gospel of Mark, stands at the very center of this narrative, this story about Jesus. And it casts a long and dark shadow over every scene, every word, every deed in the Gospel of Mark. And on the outside, the cross looks like an apparent failure. Jesus' enemies come by and they wag at him. They mock at him. They say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And Jesus' own disciples cannot comprehend Jesus in the way of the cross. Jesus reveals the message of the cross, the mission of the cross to them three times on the way to Jerusalem. And Peter himself attempts to, to keep Jesus from the way of the cross. This is not the way of the Messiah. But Mark invites us through this story to look closer at the cross, to come near and behold its unveiled meaning. And Mark teaches us the cross is not a tragic mistake. It's not an unthought of consequence. Rather, the cross is proposed and planned, and Jesus is a willing participant. He teaches his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And not only is Jesus a willing participant, but he rushes headlong towards the cross. He plunges towards Jerusalem, willing and ready to take up the cross. And in fact, the cross is God's chosen portion for his beloved son. It is the very will of the Father for Jesus, his son, to drink this cup to its fullest. We see that both the Father and the Son are willing participants of this cross and all that takes place in the Passion account. We press further into the cross, and Mark shows us that Jesus has come on a redemptive mission, and the cross stands at the center of this redemptive mission for mankind. Jesus has come, and he has arrived as a physician to cure the sick and to call sinners unto himself. And the cross is the much-needed medicine that Jesus offers to the world. Jesus explains the medicine of the cross. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see in the pages of Mark that Jesus' death brings life. His wrath-bearing sacrifice, his being handed over to the Gentiles, brings forgiveness. And by the death of one man, many will be saved. But Mark keeps pressing us into the story and into the meaning of the cross. Jesus has not only come to save a people, but he has come to reign over a people, and he's come to reign even over the entire world. And Mark begins his story with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And these words are so common to us, Christ, Son of God. Is Christ the last name of of Jesus? What does this mean? But as we will find out as we press into this gospel, these are politically charged words. And Jesus has political ambitions. Jesus, as the Messiah, comes with the aspirations of Psalm 2. He comes to rule over the nations and he comes to make the ends of the earth his very possession. And Mark shows us that the cross does not stand in the way of Jesus' reign, but the cross is his very throne. 
And on the cross, he reigns over the entire world as the king of Psalm 2. Jesus is bound and nailed to the cross as the king of Israel, and he dies as the king of Israel. And the placard above his head reads, The King of the Jews. And it is here at the foot of the cross and only at the foot of the cross that we can recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Only one character in the Gospel of Mark fully grasps and fully declares who Jesus is in his person and in his work. And it's a surprising person. It isn't one of Jesus' disciples. It isn't Peter. It isn't James. It isn't John. It isn't even blind Bartimaeus who cries out to Jesus, O son of David, have mercy on me. But it's a a Roman soldier standing nearby the cross who watches Jesus breathe his last. And as he is standing there at the foot of the cross, he sees the crucified Savior and he confesses as he looks through the open veil, truly this man was the Son of God. And just as quickly and as hurriedly as Mark began this story about Jesus and his gospel, he brings it to a close. Mark's gospel doesn't end with a great commission scene like the gospel of Matthew does. His gospel doesn't include long and informative chats like the gospel of Luke does. His gospel doesn't include meals or roasted fish. We don't even get to meet the resurrected Christ in the gospel of Mark. Mark leaves us with startling good news. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See this place where they laid him. We are left to feel and we are left to ponder with the women who came to see Jesus. Mark ends his gospel with these words. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So that's Mark's gospel shorthand. And in the coming months, we're going to dig into it and see the great treasures he has for us in it. So now we need to take up our second aim in this sermon. Where is Mark taking us with this story about Jesus and his kingdom? What does he want to press on our souls? How does he want us to grow? How does he want us to change? And three concerns, three themes pop up again and again and again as you read the story of Jesus and his kingdom. Mark desires, first of all, that we would be a people who see Jesus. Mark presses on our souls again and again with the question of who is Jesus? And we are led to wonder when the crowds cry out, what is this, a new teaching with authority? We never saw anything like this. We are led through this narrative to consider and to question with Jesus' disciples when they say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we're even called to give an answer in this story about Jesus. Jesus asks his disciples, and surely he is asking us as well, but who do you say that I am? Mark writes this urgent story so that we would be able to give an answer to this great question. 
and the story works to fulfill our most basic and fundamental need so that we would know in the fullest sense who Jesus is. And Mark works faithfully towards this end. Story by story, saying by sailing, healing by healing, Mark works as a skillful artist, and he paints before us a full portrait of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is not just merely writing for information, for information's sake. He is writing with redemptive aims. He writes that for that we as his readers would draw near through these pages and that we would see this glorious and wonderful Savior. That we as his readers would see Jesus' works and hear his words and behold his character and his identity. And that in seeing this Savior and that in knowing the Savior, we would find our promised salvation and that we would hope in Christ alone. Mark is faithful. He places Jesus Christ in full glory right into our laps so that we might see him and behold him. And so our goal and our aim as we pick up the gospel of Mark and work through it bit by bit is to use this story that Mark writes as Mark intends it. And we use this gospel story rightly when we come to these pages and when we read these stories and we ask the question, but who do you say that I am? When we faithfully ask this question and we dig into the text, we will find a great reward for our work. For when we ask this question, but who do you say that I am? And we dig into the text, we will find ourselves coming face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we will, by the Spirit's help, see his beauty and his character and his majesty. And seeing this Savior in his glory will change our lives. When we see Jesus, we'll be able to actually worship. When we see Jesus, we will have satisfying food for our souls that we can find nowhere else. When we see this Jesus, we'll actually be able to rest because here is our salvation. Mark's second theme is that we would hear Jesus. Mark does not only paint a picture of Jesus for us, but in this gospel story, we hear the voice of our blessed Savior. We hear his preaching as he proclaims the message of the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We hear his gracious words to those who suffer. We can think of all those great scenes. The woman with the flow of blood and how kindly and mercifully Jesus deals with her. We hear his rebukes of the religious insiders as he calls them hypocrites. We hear his parables. We hear his authoritative and mighty words as he commands storms to stop and he controls demons. And we even hear Jesus in his weakness, in his suffering while he's upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark in this gospel story engages all of our senses. We do not only see with our mind's eye Jesus and all that's going on around him, but Jesus' voice comes booming forth from this gospel. We hear it. And Mark desires that we hear Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when Mark desires that we hear Jesus, he doesn't desire that we would just perceive the sound of his voice. 
that decibels would just register in our ears. He has a deeper meaning than this. For when we look into the pages of Mark, many people heard Jesus. Think about the crowds. They gladly heard Jesus. They gladly thronged around him. But as the story goes on, we see that they did not gladly follow him in the way. We can think about the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They heard Jesus. They disputed with Jesus. But they conspired to kill him. We can even think of Judas, one of Jesus' twelve, one of the inner circle. Judas followed Jesus everywhere. He heard Jesus' teaching. He saw what Jesus did. But he was just a traitor. And Mark aims for a deeper hearing than this. And anyone who parents can understand the double meaning of hearing. A hearing that does not just penetrate our senses, but a hearing that penetrates down into our hearts. A hearing that gives rise to loyalty and allegiance and obedience. A hearing that perceives true reality and understanding. A hearing, like in the parable of the sower, that falls upon good soil and bears fruit. The call is given out again and again in the gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the matter of hearing is all important in the Gospel of Mark. For what we do with Jesus' words is all that matters in this life. All of humanity stands on level ground when it comes to this important matter. We will not be judged by whether if we have a university degree, or if we've had a successful career, or if we have a full house. All that matters is that we hear the words of Jesus and we respond to them in obedience. And Jesus draws near to our ears with the demand of the gospel, and this demand rings out over and over again. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Lord Jesus tells us, and this saying of Jesus is very helpful as we enter into the gospel of Mark. Jesus says to his disciples, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus tells us, pay attention to what you hear. Third, Mark desires that we would follow Jesus. We do not only see Jesus in the pages of the Gospel of Mark, but we see the disciples, and we see their failings and their shortcomings. But Mark, Mark invites us to join their ranks, to follow Jesus on the way with these weary men. And while Mark records history for us about Jesus and what Jesus did, this Gospel is not simply a historical document. It is a living document. It is the the Word of God. And Mark calls us to enter into this narrative and to begin to live out of this story about Jesus. He calls us to take on this mantle of discipleship. He bids us to wrestle against our sinful and fearful desires. And he calls us to take up the cross and follow after Jesus in the way. And Jesus' words ring out loud and clear. Jesus calls us through this story, follow me. Follow me and I will make you become 
fishers of men. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in your word this morning. It is good and precious food for our souls. We pray as we think and as we hear the gospel of Mark that it would bear fruit in our hearts. Oh, Father, we pray, show us Christ Jesus in his glory and cause our hearts to worship. Give us ears to hear so that we might be obedient to Jesus' words. And give us feet to walk that we might follow the path of Christ Jesus and follow him in the way, taking up our cross, denying ourselves. Oh, Father, do this work among us. Cause your word to bear fruit now, we pray in Jesus' glorious and wonderful name. Amen.